all his paintings, he really wanted, he, he didn't, wasn't interested in representation. He was interested in a higher truth or a more fundamental truth about the subject. He thought of his art as a religious calling. He thought art had a moral purpose. Our elementar is doch. Essentially, it's like this. Es braucht ein Leben, damit es Kunst gibt. You need life for art to be created. This is Finding Van Gogh, a podcast series about my search for the very last portrait painted by Vincent van Gogh and its turbulent history. I'm Johannes Nichelmann. The portrait of Dr. Gachet is still in Berlin, in the hands of the Nazis. The Reich Ministry of Public Enlightenment and Propaganda has seized the painting from the Städtische Galleries collection in Frankfurt. Meanwhile, Jewish director Georg Zwarzensky, in charge of the collection with the old masters, is barely hanging on to his position. The story continues. In the third part of Finding Van Gogh, we will experience how times and art change. This episode spans over half a century of history. It's January 1938. This piece in the Frankfurter Zeitung about the portrait of Dr. Gachet, a subtle act of protest against its confiscation, was published weeks ago. Georg Zotzensky and his wife invite friends over for dinner. It's the 40th birthday of Ferdinand Kramer, a Jewish architect. But above all, it's a farewell party. Unlike Zotzensky, his friend Kramer has decided to leave the country. Life for Jews in Germany is becoming ever more dangerous and unbearable. It was a harmonious evening. The two couples were friends. Until suddenly some uptight men from the Gestapo, the secret state police, came storming into their dining room. Spreading fear and terror completely unexpectedly. And then they carried Georg Zwarzensky away. Konstanze Kruwell worked as a journalist for an important newspaper called the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung and has written a book on Zwarzensky. Then they tormented him all night, saying he must have been responsible for Benno Reifenberg's article on Dr. Gachet in the Frankfurter Zeitung. Although he, of course, had nothing to do with it. And then they accused him of actually being the model himself, the person Van Gogh painted in the picture. Yes, ridiculously stupid. But also life-threatening. Swatsinski later tells his assistant how they placed a pistol on the table in front of him to intimidate him. He manages to convince the Gestapo that he wasn't even in the museum when the article was written. He wasn't even in Frankfurt. The Gestapo then releases him. That was indeed a bad omen. But Georg Zwarzensky and his wife still did not want to leave the country. For Benno Reifenberg, the actual author of the article, things turn out even worse. He refuses to reveal the name of his informant at the museum to turn him in to the Gestapo. He's placed in preventive detention. Later, he writes in a letter, it's so hard, it's like rape. 
Wir sind wir in den Katakomben. Now we are in the catacombs of the Städel. True. Aber es ist gleichzeitig auch But at the same time it's site of the building's cultural memory. Das Archiv Iris Schmeister is a Provenance researcher at the Städel Museum. Her job is to research the origin and ownership history of the artworks. She's browsed through hundreds of documents on the portrait of Dr. Gachet that are still stored here in the museum. She's found sources that claim Swatsinski and the author of the article were not the only ones who were interrogated by the Gestapo. Alfred Walters was taken in as well. If you can cast your mind back to the last episode, you will remember that he was the director of the very part of the Städel dedicated to modern and contemporary art. He later recounts this incident in a protocol. I went to the Gauleitung, the headquarters of the regional Nazi party leader, and after waiting some time was then received by Mr. Stör, who asked me if I was aware about the bit in the Frankfurter Zeitung on the confiscated painting of Van Gogh. I responded affirmatively, and was furthermore asked if I personally feel that the article has anything to do with the confiscation of the painting. I answered that the article has everything to do with the confiscation. And if I knew who the author of the article is, I said no. If I had an idea who the author could be, I responded, based on the style of the piece, I presume it was Mr. Reifenberg, but I can't say for sure. If I or another employee at the Städel Museum had arranged for this article to be published. Professor Zwartensky, who was presented to the Gestapo, has already been interrogated and claimed he was away at the time period in question. I responded that I was not the one who commissioned this piece. Ich wurde gefragt, wie ich zu der Beschlagnahme stände. I was asked what I thought about the confiscation. Ich antwortete. I responded. Ich hielte sie für falsch. I believed it was wrong. At this point in time, about a year before the war begins, the Nazis have already long made clear what they want to hear and what they don't. A statement like this takes courage. Ja, es ist spannend, was sich alles um... It's really interesting to see what the painting and what art motivated people to do, to even put their own lives in danger. I mean, he could have just said anything. He knew what they wanted to hear, didn't he? Yes. So, a painting is confiscated. A newspaper publishes a short piece on it as an act of subtle resistance. The Gestapo puts three people through the mill for it. And then more people start coming out to oppose the painting's confiscation. Dissent even comes from a very unexpected place. Friedrich Krebs, the mayor of Frankfurt, becomes an advocate for the painting as well. He represents a large group of office holders in the Third Reich who cannot be strictly categorized as either good or bad. This is what Frankfurt historian Andreas Hansa tells me. And he also tells me that in Frankfurt the discussion on Krebs was a heated controversy. Krebs joined the Nazi party at a very young age. He was a loyal Nazi. And then Friedrich Krebs was appointed as the mayor of Frankfurt by Gauleiter and Reichsmeer Sprenger. Firstly, everything had to be cleaned up the Nazi way. So about two years after Krebs becomes mayor, a conflict emerges with the Gauleiter, the regional Nazi leader. Conflicts between mayors and Gauleiters were quite common, actually. The Gauleiter functions as hardliner, as agitator, the party representative. The mayor is more or less busy with the administration. He sees that the city is up and running, 
and it clashes pretty much constantly. Here in Frankfurt, this was especially the case with Gauleiter Sprenger and Mayor Krebs. And it gets particularly interesting when we look at Krebs' handling of the Stadel issues. He tells them, for example, well, sorry, I can't do anything about it. It's a private foundation, so I can't get involved with that. Which basically means he's protecting it to some extent. Of course, he could have exercised his power as mayor, loyal to the party, and could have intervened at the stable. But to some extent, he lets them do as they please. But then, but then, so he was a member of the Nazi party early on. And to be honest, to me, he still just looks like a typical bureaucrat, a puppet who executes commands. I believe that in his 12 years in office, he, like anyone else at that time, must have changed a lot because those times were more intense and dramatic than others. Some sources claim that he would have liked to have resigned during the later Nazi period, because the tension between him and the Gauleiter became so intense to the point of wanting to quit. But then he had his bourgeois friends who came to him and said, if you resign and quit protecting us, we'll be in danger. And it's probably these bourgeois friends who also encourage him to take care of the portrait of Dr. Gachet. Among them is a widow of the donor who had financed the painting in 1911. She pushes Krebs to get this painting back and bring it into her possession. But his efforts prove unsuccessful. One high-ranking Nazi leader, Hermann Göring, helps himself to the confiscated artwork in Berlin. He wants to turn Gachet into cash by selling it abroad. What they do is, they're using art as a weapon. Gachet, like so many other pieces that were seized from the museum, is simply irreplaceable. When Alfred Wolters learns that Gachet is now to be sold abroad and that Hermann Göring is the one behind it, he hands in his letter of resignation. This letter of resignation is an impressive document. He writes that he just cannot follow the path of the Führer, that he cannot run a gallery, a museum, he cannot shape or further develop a gallery in a way that contradicts his beliefs. I don't know of any other instance in which a museum director resigns because of his conscience. I see this as quite exceptional. And what does Mayor Krebs do? He declines the resignation of Walters. He says he already has enough people around him that are fully convinced by the Nazi ideology. Meanwhile, Georg Trotzensky, the very man who brought the portrait of Dr. Gachet to Frankfurt 27 years ago, still officially holds his position as a director of the private part of the museum. But the Jewish population in Germany is increasingly becoming ostracized, persecuted and deprived of its rights. And Mayor Krebs starts getting more and more pressure from Berlin. He needs to expel Trotzensky from his post. And that's what he did. Swatsinski is surprised in his office. He was sitting at his desk when the Gestapo came in. Swatsinski's successor later described the scene in the obituary of Swatsinski's wife, Marie. No one experienced so much torment together with Swatsinski as his wife did as he was removed from his desk and expelled from this honorable museum by the unqualified hands of an amateur in uniform. 
He held his partner in his arms, nearly stumbling. And the man whose tears had never been seen by another person wept at the humiliation and uttered in revulsion, this is barbaric. Swarzynski manages to flee Germany in September 1938. His family joins him shortly after in the United States. Just weeks later, Kristallnacht takes place, the beginning of the nationwide state dispossession of Jews in Germany. He had to list everything he wanted to take with him, including each individual pair of underwear, everything he wanted to take with him. This is extremely shocking and unsettling. Because of his Jewish descent, he was persecuted, systematically deprived of his rights, dishonored, and finally dispossessed. After the war, several people from Frankfurt tried to contact him, such as his successor and old friends. But Swarzynski was so deeply hurt that he never set foot in Frankfurt again. I think it takes a lot to offend a man as generous as Georg Swarzynski to that point. That's not unusual for emigrants of that time. It was a horrible trauma. It's not only the degradation, but the thought knowing that had I not left but stayed until 1938-39 or even 40, I would have ended up like my brother in Auschwitz, or my cousin, or my neighbor. Now, after 1945, he can reflect in retrospect. And if it's one thing he's sure of, it's that he would have most likely been killed if he had stayed. In the US, he becomes the curator of the Boston Museum of Arts. Indeed, not a bad job, but one that doesn't compare to the job that was taken from him. After the war... He applies for reparations. He had to fight for a long, long time to eventually get this compensation. And of course, victims like him only got back a small fraction of that which they had actually lost. If they hadn't, in fact, lost their lives, and it was their heirs who had to claim compensation on behalf of them. It took a very long time for the payment to finally be transferred. And one of Zwarzenski's former colleagues from his time at the Stadel sent the compensation office and the city a tribute to him, written by an American art historian, with a handwritten message, so as to say, do you understand who this is? So even afterwards, they continue to treat him very badly. Just like many other victims were. This was certainly not uncommon. How does the story of the portrait of Dr. Gachet continue? Was Hermann Göring able to sell it as he had planned? Göring's art agent, carpet salesman Josef Angerer, happens to take care of it. A certain Franz Koenig from Amsterdam goes for it. He's a banker and a passionate art collector. He's aware of this Van Gogh worth. Not only its aesthetic, but its asset value. After France, Denmark and Germany, Dr. Gachet now makes his way to the Netherlands. The painting, however, quickly switches owners from Koenig's to a Jewish banker friend of his, a man named Siegfried Kramarski. The details of this transaction are unclear. 
Anyhow, just like Swatsensky from Frankfurt, Kramarski and his family also immigrate to the United States. And the portrait of Dr. Gachet comes with them. So, Dr. Gachet is now in the U.S. Swatsensky is in the U.S. Did they ever manage to meet again? Yes, they met again. And we know that because of a letter Swatsensky sent to Alfred Walters on December 13, 1946, from Boston, in which he wrote, P.S., I forgot to answer your question about Van Gogh's gâchet. I did see the painting a while ago, to my great surprise, at a loan exhibition of French art in the New York Metropolitan Museum. Through my inquiries, I was able to find out that it belongs to Kramarski, whose collection I'm sure you've heard of. Koenigs bought the painting from the Nazis in Berlin and then sold it to Kramarski before his death. Kramarski also lived in Holland and, as far as I know, was a close banker and collector friend of Koenigs. His message sounds pretty sober to me. Yeah. Yes, that's true. That's true. Who were those new owners? Lola and Siegfried Kramarski, a Jewish family, originally from Hamburg, Germany. They had already relocated to Amsterdam in 1923 and then later on fled to the United States. There are still a few people who actually remember the Kramarskis. Ewald Radke is one of those, an art dealer from Frankfurt, who got to visit Lola Kramarski shortly after her husband Siegfried's death. Das war eine Dame mit Zuschnitt des ins Moderne übertragenen. That was a lady who brought the style of the late 19th century into the modern world of the 20th century. You wouldn't just say. You kept a respectful amount of distance. Not in an uncomfortable way. She's just someone you saw and thought, gosh, now there's someone in the room. You don't meet people like that anymore. And where was this painting? In the hall or in the sitting room? No, it was in the large parlor. Background, late English, 18th century setup. In no way modern. But lots of artwork, not only by Van Gogh, but also other Impressionists. And still the way rich Americans live today. They had a place up around 57th Street, in a brown building in a side street. No real sophisticated palazzo, more like a plush family house. We chat, which is easy, as Mrs. Kramarski, of course, speaks fluent German. We talked about art, collections, this and that, and the prices, how they come to be, how it's all run. Just the stuff that people who are interested in art talk about. It was so impressive to be in this house, with all these paintings, and the suitable personnel and how the table was set. It had a grandiose style. Sounds like it must have really left an impression on him. After all, 60 years later, he still remembers this encounter. 
I'm back with Cynthia Saltzman. We've already met her in the first episode. She's written a book on the portrait of Dr. Gachet. And I bet she would have surely loved to have had the same experience. She had to rely on research alone to reconstruct this chapter of the painting's history. It was so wonderful to talk to a conservator who had worked on the painting to clean it. It was in the living room. It was over the mantelpiece. And she told me that it had a layer that had come from cigarette smoke. Paintings get dirty. I think it was one of the Kramarskis said to me that they remembered their father leaning on the mantelpiece, smoking a cigar. So the painting was part of the family, so... Oh, yeah, I think it was part of the family. But anyway, yeah, it was in their living room on uh, Central Park West um, until Lola Kramarski became sick. In fact, she loses her eyesight. The family then decides to lend the portrait of Dr. Gachet to the Metropolitan Museum, which is right in the neighborhood. After six years, it is retained on permanent loan as part of the museum's huge collection. Morning. Eight o'clock in the morning at the Metropolitan Museum in New York. Normally at this hour, only a few employees walk these sacred halls of one of the most famous museums. Today, Cynthia and I are allowed to be here with them too, without any visitors. Otherwise, it would be completely packed. And I can see the Van Gogh over there. And here we come to a whole wall of Van Gogh. And I, I guess we should just go chronologically. How many pictures? One, two, three, four, seven pictures. And all but one are from the last two years of his life when he did his greatest paintings in Arles. First in Arles in 1888, and then Saint-Rémy, and both also in Provence, and then he came north to Auvergne. We stand before some of Van Gogh's paintings one version of Madame Ginot of Cypresses and one of his famous sunflowers. The sunflower seemed to jump out at us from its blue background and it's almost like I could feel it, I could grab it. Looking at these paintings, being alone, does it change? Absolutely. My favorite thing is to go to a museum when there's nobody there after hours um, because then you can really see them and also because... That's what artists aspire to, to have their paintings ultimately go into a museum. And yet, and they wanted the public to see them and other artists to see them. And, um, but sometimes today, the museums, you know, if, if the museum, if the rooms are so crowded, it's uh, difficult to see. Cynthia viewed Dr. Gachet here for the first time and it undoubtedly became an important part of her life. I envy her. I've only seen it digitally or as a print. What is it with Van Gogh that my great-grandmother, my grandmother, my mother and me, we all like him. So it's, it's very unusual to art maybe that all generations can look at these paintings and see something and, and in a way like it. So there's not what we call in German zeitgeist. You know this word? Of course. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> How much has been written in English about zeitgeist? <laughs> Yeah, but there is no zeitgeist with Van Gogh, or is there? What I'm trying to say is that Van Gogh's work wasn't just a fad, that it is timeless. I think, um, first of all, he was very famous because of the myth of Van Gogh and the legend of Van Gogh. But that's, you know, was really a problem. Before the 1980s, that's the first thing people know still, unfortunately, is that he committed suicide and got off his ear and all that stuff. But um, it's hard to know why he's so appealing. I think that it's because he, he had 
so much influence on um, 20th century art. But the most important thing is really that in 1986 and 1987, the Metropolitan had two major Van Gogh exhibitions. In the 1980s, the whole notion of Van Gogh, the ideas about Van Gogh were changing. And scholars, um, for the first time, really looked at his work, looked at his letters, and, and came to understand that he was a very cerebral, intellectual painter who mapped out really blueprints of his paintings, but also the entire sweep of his work. So the Metropolitan's exhibitions, they looked at, the, at Van Gogh, really, and his work day by day, and so that you could really see his incredible progress. He's painting. In Auvers, he made 70 paintings in about 70 days. He's making drawings, and he's writing letters. Um, and Dr. Gachet was in that exhibition. You can't paint like this if you are, have any... It's certainly obsessive, but it's not insanity. And these exhibitions, in the catalogs, too, they say that his illness has really nothing to do with his art. And they separate the illness and the art. And that's really a breakthrough and the, really the way to see him. The, the myth of Van Gogh also, which so distorts him, is that he was always isolated, always alone. Now, when he's doing these paintings, a major painting a day at that kind of rate, of course he's alone. But at the same time, he's always communicating with Theo in these letters. But when he was in Paris... He lived with Theo, and we don't have letters from then that time, so we don't know that much about his day-to-day activities, but we do know that he became friends with many artists in the avant-garde, Paris avant-garde, Toulouse-Lautrec, Paul Signac, and Gauguin. And that image of him is completely isolated. It's wrong. But are we really able to understand him and his art without looking into his biography? I meet art historian and philosopher Gottfried Böhm in Basel, Switzerland. Essentially it's like this. You need life for art to be created. You can't just parenthesize it and cross it all out. Of course, people are right when they say there's no simple formula for the relationship between life and art. Sometimes life is just plain ordinary and insignificant, uninspiring. But for Van Gogh, life is inspiration to be productive. I mean, he was a poor man. Can you imagine that artists like him were shunned as outcasts back then? Poor souls, they never caught a break. And Van Gogh would never have survived as an artist had his brother not given him continual financial support. Are you saying he consciously chose his lifestyle? It was a conscious decision for art, to make art. There were some successful artists too back then. It wasn't as if you immediately entered Nirvana. Just the risks were high. And that lifestyle was precisely his risk. Experts like Cynthia Saltzman always emphasize how rational, art historically precise and clear his work was, and that he only painted when his head was clear, when he was doing well, that he was basically a genius despite his illness, rather than suggesting that the illness may have made a real contribution to his art. I really wouldn't separate so clearly here. 
That is certainly one side of the story. But when you, excuse my frankness, when you overemphasize that side, you will end up with an image of Van Gogh as stamp collector. He would gather individual objects, observe them, sketch them, and then he would get to work. I think this process did happen on the side. It's indeed true what others say in that respect. But this working habit had to connect with a kind of furor. Sorry, but otherwise it wouldn't be Van Gogh. It's not enough just to do this kind of analytic research. It had to merge with an ardent conscience. That's what makes him unique. So that means without his, well, extreme lifestyle, these paintings would never have been created. In his case, you could maybe say that. But to be clear, I'm not suggesting that we should understand Van Gogh's work as a documentation of his life or his pathologies. In fact, you can't do that. I'm just saying, art doesn't come from art. Art emerges from living conditions. And it makes sense to take a look at these living conditions, which doesn't mean I'm using these conditions to spell out the meaning of his paintings. But I do then learn a great deal about this artist's attitudes and behaviors, which could prove useful for observing and analyzing his work. But I do understand what people polemicize against, against the attempt to say, let's sit Van Gogh on the couch and examine him and then we'll know what his art is all about. That would, of course, be nonsense. But Cynthia Saltzman and Gottfried Böhm agree on one thing. Van Gogh wanted his art to go far beyond just what was visible. When he did all his paintings, he really wanted, he, he didn't, wasn't interested in representation. He was interested in a higher truth or a more fundamental truth about the subject. He thought of his art as a religious calling. He thought art had a moral purpose and that it had the same role as religion used to have in the past. And while he worked directly from nature, he wasn't interested in photographic likeness, you know, in this portrait or in in the landscape. He wanted to convey something deeper, different ideas and truths. And to do this, he would use color symbolically. Sure, you can concern yourself with this stuff. But if you're asking, what is this as a painting, as an image? Those bits and pieces should remain at the place where Van Gogh originally set them up. Van Gogh never spoke to me and said, so, now please name and decline my entire repertoire. Here you are, an image. Just look at it. Cynthia got her first look at the Gachet in person here in the New York Metropolitan Museum in the late 80s. It's during this time that a new chapter in this piece's history is starting to unfold. The prices of Van Gogh's had been going up very steeply, and at some point in the late 1980s, they decided that they would put this painting on the market. But at what cost? And then we finally got to 75 million. After a historic night, the painting disappears under lock and key. To make art available to everybody is a very um, 
democratic ideal, but ridiculous. Finding Van Gogh is a podcast series by the Städte Museum in Frankfurt in collaboration with Jakob Schmidt and myself, Johannes Nichelmann. Before you find out how the portrait of Dr. Gachet rewrote auction history in the next episode, here's a little tip. The Städte Museum is on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Otherwise, as always, you can find important information regarding Finding Van Gogh on our website, findingvangogh.com. Stay tuned for the next episode.